If I haven't met you before, my name is Jeremiah. I, uh, first and foremost, I'm just a, a member of, of Oak Church, and I, and I love being here. I'm also a member of our, our steering group, um, and I appreciate Chris giving me this opportunity to, to teach today. <clears throat> Though I will admit, when he told me what, what uh, scripture I'd be teaching on today, I was a little bit unsure whether or not to accept it. Just anytime you have the responsibility to teach on Revelation, I feel like you're treading on, on, on uneven ground. And because in my, in my history, I've kind of, uh, my interest in Revelation has mainly been the very end of Revelation and the beautiful visions of new creation. And so everything else before that, I'm just like, ah, you know, I'll, I'll deal with that when I, when I have to, if I have to. <laughs> so now I have to. <laughs> Um, but it was a really a great experience to dig into uh, some material and immerse myself. And for me, the, the letters to seven churches in Asia in Revelation 2 and 3. Um, and in my brief uh, studies, I found that that's probably the easiest part of Revelation to teach. And, but I, I hope to share with you like, some, some of the insights I learned. Uh, and also, hopefully, this will give you all some, like, a framework and some tools or thoughts or ideas that as we continue through Revelation through the summer, that will make it less daunting to, to engage in. Um, but before I jump into to reading, reading the text, I, w- I want to share a story just to kind of give you two, two images. It'll be relevant later, uh, but also give you... Uh, insight into me. So I, I attended years ago. Um, I attended seminary in, in Chicago. I was, the, the seminary was in St. Paul, Minnesota. But I was living in 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 the suburbs of Chicago, doing a three-year internship. And um, the as, as part of the, I mean, three years is a long time for an internship. Um, but those, the church had a partnership with with the seminary. Anyway, that's not the the main part of the story, but. One of my responsibilities in being part of the internship was I went to a couple of conferences and to where we set up a booth and you kind of pitch the, the internship and, and advertise it and promote it, if you will, to others. So one weekend we went to this very large church leadership event in, in Atlanta, Georgia. And it was... Uh, I always get really critical and cynical and judgmental when I'm at these big gatherings of Christian leaders. And so that's, that probably says more about me than it says about them. Um, but here, I want to paint, here's a scene that, that unfolded. We, we have our booth, and the booth next to us is a, is a Bible publisher. I can't remember who it is. But they had just released a new translation uh, of a Bible. And during one of these sessions, they made an announcement that during the break, uh, if you went to their booth and filled it, gave them your information, email, you would get a free copy of this new translation. And as you might expect, immediately at the break, people made a beeline to that booth. So I, I'm at our booth, too. People start coming out. I didn't realize, I didn't hear the announcement, but I just know people start coming out and lining up. And the representatives for this publisher weren't there. And people waited patiently for about five minutes, maybe ten wasn't very long, but the first person in line decided, well, there's the, there's the clipboard where I can write my information down. I'm just going to write it down. I reach back, get my complimentary Bible, and be on my way. And then two or, three, two or three people did the same thing. And it wasn't long before 
they forgot about the clipboard, the clipboard. They didn't write down their information. They just started reaching back. People started going around the table, and it was it turned into a free for all for Bibles. And it was this scene that uh, I mean, you've seen these scenes of Black Friday sales when people are clamoring for like the last flat screen TV, like it's their last meal. And that's really what it looked like. I'm like, what is going on? And like, these are the people who are leading our churches and, and like leading our children. And maybe, maybe, maybe they had the best intentions. They were going to take and give those away. I, I don't know. But I was, I was like offended and, and, and embarrassed on behalf of church leaders at what was happening. So end scene. That's, I, it kind of lost a little bit of my, uh, or diminished a little bit of my hope in, in church leader humanity. So anyway, so I leave, fast forward a little bit. I, I leave the conference, and from there I'm flying to, I'm going to visit and spend some time with my family in, outside of Boone. So I, uh, I'm flying to Charlotte where I have a car reserved, and I'm going to drive up, drive up to Boone. Well, due to traffic, I, uh, I miss my scheduled flight out of Atlanta, and I'm, fortunately I'm able to get on the, the last flight out of the evening. But it's supposed to land at 11.30 in Charlotte, we actually arrive at 11.30 p.m. The rental desk closes at midnight. I was like, there's enough time. I can, for some people, that's like super stressful. I was like, 30 minutes. I don't have any checked luggage. I can make it. The flight lands at 11.45. So I'm like, okay, this is tight. So as soon as we touch down, I'm powering up my phone, trying to dial the desk and say, hey, I, we landed. I'm here. Please don't close. Wait for me. I'll be there. They assured me, okay, we'll wait for you. So I get to the desk, I hand the, the, the agent my license and, uh, and my credit card. So she starts doing her thing, and I see her like, look down at my license and look at the screen and kind of look at the license again, and I can tell the wheels are turning. And while that was happening, I, I start having this creeping feeling going in my head of like what, what was going on. And she said, uh, Mr. Dodson, do you know your driver's license is expired? And I was like... Um, I kind of feigned ignorance at that point. I was like, really? <laughs> and I had, that was that, she confirmed that creeping feeling I was had because I, I was like, I had been living in Chicago. This was my third year. I never changed my residence, and so I still had my North Carolina driver's license, but I had never, uh, never renewed it when I was home, so I was, you know, an outlaw in that regard. And, and so I was like, is there anything you can do? Can you, like, type in a different, like, uh, ex expiration date. She's like, I'm sorry, I can't do it. I was like, here it is at midnight, and I was like, is I'm supposed to? I'm trying to get to Boone. Is there any way for me to get there? It's about an hour and a half drive from Charlotte. She's like, I, I don't know. You'll have to check public transportation. I think buses have stopped running. There's a gentleman behind me. He's waiting for a car too, and he just kind of, I think he's he's watching this unfold. So he steps around and says. He's like, what, you know, where are you going? I said, to Boone. He's like, well, he was from England. I'm not going to attempt an English accent. He's like, I don't know where that is. Where is that? I was like, about an hour and a half north of here. And he was like, um, I, I don't have to be anywhere until like 7 o'clock in the morning. Um, if, uh, if you're willing to pay for my rental car, I'll drive you there. And I was like, really? And so... That's what happened. I was like, okay, he's going to So he steps up to the counter. He's like, I need to rent a car. And she goes, I'm sorry, but we're all out. <laughs> like, and then I was like, no, you're not. You had a car for me. Let him have my car. She's like, oh, yeah. And <laughs> so um, the last car on the lot, he got it. 
And so, and so this guy, this guy the, I mean, the ultimate kindness of strangers, drives me to Boone. And as we're driving, we're just talking, and I tell him where I've been and what I'm doing. I'm in seminary and a student. And he's a professed um, agnostic, you know, doesn't really believe. And from England, from England, I don't try to convert him. It's late. I'm t- we're both tired. And, uh, but we just have a very enjoyable conversation because one thing we did have in common was an interest in motorsports. So we talked a lot about uh, cars and racing. But the, I, that, have that experience immediately juxtaposed with what I witnessed at the conference. And I was like, man, there's something going on. Like, because the perception of Christians in this world is marked primarily by hypocrisy. And, and, and so many people not of faith are exemplars of certain kindnesses and, and goodness in, in this world. And so it was something I, I had to wrestle with for a while. So just keep that in mind, what Christians represent in this world and, um, and, and who, what, what, who we are, to, like how are we going to be distinctive? What, what is it that sets us apart in this world? Um, so let, now let's jump into the text. I'm going to read, since we're covering the seven letters to the churches in Asia, we're not going to read all seven of those. We'll just read the bookends, which the first is a letter to the church in Ephesus. The last is a letter to the church in Laodicea. So I'll read those. The, the words should be on the screen. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one, either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears to hear, let let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. 
God, I give you thanks for gathering us here today. And I pray that your word would come alive to us all. Would you speak through your word? Would you speak through me? And may we be receptive to hearing what your spirit may be saying to us individually and collectively as a church. Amen. So one of the first uh, things that stood out when I started studying Revelation, there was a statement in one of the commentaries that said, Revelation is not about the Antichrist, but about the living Christ. It is not about a rapture out of this world, but a faithful discipleship in this world. So at the end of all this, I, I hope that we will be challenged and not obsessed, as some people are, with getting out of this crazy world we live in but challenged to be more faithful disciples living in this world and bringing God's kingdom here on earth. Uh, before I get into a couple of examples from, from the letters, uh, and what I found very helpful for me and, and part of properly interpreting an apocalyptic text like Revelation, and it's not unique in its genre, there are many examples, I didn't get to, to read many of those, but this was not an uncommon genre. It's uncommon for us, so which makes it a bit more difficult to understand. But in that time, apocalyptic literature and writings were not that uncommon. Um, but apocalyptic literature has several characteristics that, that, if you understand them and know they're present, will help you uh, interpret correctly. One is symbolism. One is numerology. Uh, another is a highly formalized surface structure. And, and, and an idea of recapitulation. All of which, all of these characteristics are, you find in Revelation, not just as a whole, but also in the letters to the seven churches. Uh, when it comes to symbolism, there are a couple of, of examples. We just read about the church being a lampstand in, in the letter to Ephesus. And preceding the letters, God talks about the churches as lampstands, very symbolic. Or the white clothing in the letter to the church at Sardis or the, the pillars with names on them in the letter to Philadelphia. There is symbolism that is very, uh, very relevant and meaningful to, to the hearers, and that, that's employed in the, in the literature. Numerology is another one throughout Scripture, uh, and Revelation uses it well. For example, one is often used to represent uniqueness or independence. Three is a number that often represents the divine. Uh, six is a number that represents incompleteness, therefore evil. And when it's multiplied times three, it's like the ultimate in evil. That's where we get the uh, 666 is the representation of, of ultimate evil. Seven is, is an example of wholeness or fullness or completion in, in one of the most sacred numbers. Likewise, 10 and 12 also represent fullness. So if you have an understanding of, of the numbers and how they're used, it helps to understand it. Seven is particularly interesting to us because uh, we're reading seven letters to the churches, and following the seven letters are the seven, seven visions. So to you, seven of anything raises it to above the level of the particular to the level of the general or universal. So the letters to the seven churches represent more than communication with a number of particular congregations. 
uh, they refer to the church on earth and, and the church. And there's, there are generalities and universalities that you can take away from the seven letters. So another characteristic, the formalized structure. Uh, there's a structure throughout Revelation, but also in the seven letters. Each letter follows a very uh, fixed structure as, as well. And the last is, is re- recapitulation, it's a, which is a form of repetition. Again, seven, something gets repeated seven times, or uh, we may understand it more as redundancy. It aims to make it increasingly difficult for the reader here to make a mistake. And it aims to make sure the message gets through the noise of extraneous signals that, that may mislead. So things get repeated, so by the end you're like, yes, I get it, I get it, I get it. So those are some characteristics of apocalyptic literature, so I hope, hope that will help you. Also, I'm a firm believer that context matters. And whenever I read about a location in the Bible, um, I want to know, okay, what, you know, what's the local context? What's going on at that time? And I have a map of, of Asia Minor. It may be a bit hard to see and read. But the, the cities in bold represent the, the seven churches that are addressed in, in Revelation. And there are a couple of other uh, cities represented as well. So first we get an overall layout of the geography. So we can leave that up there uh, for now. And I want to pull just a few contextual examples from, from three of the letters that can help us, help us again in understanding. The church in Ephesus, which was a major port city, it was also the epicenter for the, uh, um, the cult of Artemis, which was a fertility cult in that time. And the temple of Artemis was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. One of the, in uh, John's letter, he talks about the, uh, the Ephesians hating the practices of the Nicolaitan, Nicolaitan. So, of course, I ask, okay, who are the Nicolaitans and what did they represent? What does that mean? The Nicolaitans advocated accommodation to the syncretistic Roman religion and its cultic practices, um, which it did not ne- that didn't necessarily involve creedal statements, but mainly required participation in, in certain uh, cultic or ceremonial rituals and practices. And so the Nicolaitans thought you could kind of, you know, have have your cake and eat it too, and live in both worlds, making it possible that you could conform to the imperial cult, the Roman uh, civic religion, without giving up faith in the one true God and Jesus Christ. It allowed Christians to participate actively in the social, commercial, and political life of their society without threat of persecution. So John is saying, He's saying, you are rightly rejecting this accommodation that the Nicolaitans advocate, so I affirm that in you. Um, and so just having that little bit of context helps understand, okay, what, what's the situation the Ephesians are in, or the church at Ephesus, um, and, and why does this matter? Why is this, this letter relevant? So there's this idea of accommodation. Let's jump to the, the church in Sardis. So the letter... Uh, to Sardis says, I know your works. You have, been, you have the reputation of being alive, and you are in fact dead. Wake up and strengthen whatever you have left, teetering on the brink of death, for I have found that your works are far from complete in the eyes of my God. If you don't wake up, I will come like a thief, 
and you won't know what time I will come upon you. So the letter exhorts the church in Sardis to wake up. And it echoes events of Sardis's past. In one case, Sardis was captured by the Persian king Cyrus because, because the city was literally not awake. Sardis was it's an acropolis, which is like a fortified part of a city, kind of like a citadel. And as the story goes, a Persian soldier was watching when a Lydian soldier, the Lydians lived in, in Sardis, so they were occupying the city. A Lydian soldier dropped his helmet over the walls and down a cliff and then made his way down the cliffs, recovered his helmet, and made his way back up again. <clears throat> that night, the Persian soldier and a select band of warriors climbed the cliffs the same way. When they reached the top, they found the walls completely unguarded. Everyone was asleep. So the Persians entered unopposed and took the city while its people slept. And the same thing happened uh, in another battle about 200 years later. So the people of Sardis have have this uh, problem and have trouble staying awake in the midst of danger, if that makes sense. So if the church of Sardis does not remain spiritually awake, Christ will come upon them at the last judgment like a thief. So that was very, just that language, I will come as a thief in the night, they knew exactly what that meant. Let's jump to Laodicea, more context. I, I love, there's so much in Laodicea. <clears throat> Um, as you can see, Laodicea is geographically located kind of between Colossae, because it Colossa, Colossae, how do you guys say it, <clears throat> and Heropolis, and that matters. Here's why, well, I'll get to that. <clears throat> so the, the Heropolis was known for its healing hot springs, and there was actually an aqueduct that, that, that took water from Heropolis down to to Laodicea. But by the time it got there, it was, it was lukewarm and tepid. So they, they, they knew that. Colossae was known for its, its cold water. And the, the Laodiceans could hardly miss the allusion to the hot and cold, to the lukewarm water as well. And so the, what John is saying is their spiritual condition is likened to this, this tepid water. And lukewarmness is not an ancient metaphor for indifference um, and, and therefore, the text does not present a spectrum of two extremes, hot being like for something and cold being against it. Rather, the text, uh, it, it doesn't represent this wishy-washy middle. Both, the hot and the cold, are pleasing and, and beneficial. So lukewarm here means so prosperous and suppose, supposedly self-sufficient as to be completely out of fellowship with Jesus. Because in, in the letter it says, after all, you say, I'm rich and I've grown wealthy and I don't need a thing. You don't realize that you're miserable, pathetic, poor, blind, and naked. And it's also, so it's recorded in Laodicea that the, after a major earthquake, the Laodiceans refused, they refused Roman aid in rebuilding the city because, because of their sense of self-sufficiency. And that reflected the character in the church, reflected the character of the city at large. And the danger that the church in Laodicea is trying is they're trying to be spiritually self-sufficient. Um, therefore, miserable, pathetic, poor, blind, and naked, they're anything but self-sufficient. Laodicea was also known for its eye salve that it produced and, and was known to be able to, to help cure like eye problems and Jesus tells them 
he says, like, buy gold from me that's purified in, in the fire and clothing from me so that your nakedness won't be shameful and ointment to put on your eyes so that you may see. Again, these references would have been immediately recognizable and understandable to, to the churches. So that's a very quick survey. We didn't go through all of them. Some, some contextual information for uh, Ephesus, Sardis, and, and Laodicea, which I hope is helpful. But to generalize, one, co- one commentator says, it was not state-sponsored oppression that was the primary pressure being placed on the churches. It was more social, economical, and political. It was the type of, this is, this, I found this fascinating, it was the type of abuse minorities generally experience at the hands of the majority culture when the former is noticeably different. So, mind you, this is not exactly the position of the church and Christians in America today. We are not in the minority. We're at least a plurality in, in America. So don't make a, a you know, quick like, equation um, between the churches in the first century in Asia and, and the church or Christianity in, in America today. So in that survey, we get a sense of the circumstances and challenges of the early church in Asia and the ways in which they were at risk of losing their Christian identity. There's a lack of mutual love, accommodation to civil religion, accommodation to avoid economic and social disempowerment, misguided prosperity, self-sufficiency, idolatry of the elite, and powerful status quo. Eugene Peterson writes, a random selection of seven churches in any century, including our own, would turn up something very much like the seven churches addressed in Revelation. So, like I said, the churches are, are in danger of losing their Christian identity. They're in danger of losing their distinctiveness. They're in danger of losing their saltiness as the salt of, salt of the earth, the light of the world. So John, therefore, is challenging the churches to remain faithful this first love, faithfulness to, G- to God and Jesus Christ. And the ones who emerge victorious have this, this motivating like promise. This, there's at the end of each letter, you know, to those that emerge victorious, to them will be given you know, various, various things. So what does this mean for the church today? Naturally, at least for me, naturally, that's, that's the next question. What are the challenges that we face that diminish our witness? Uh, like I said, one of the hallmarks of American Christianity, at least as people perceive it, is that of, is that of hypocrisy. And Christians are practically indistinguishable from the rest of the world, except on a couple of measures. And here, this is from, from the book, um, Unchristian. In one study from, I think it's from the Barna Group, in one study conducted, we explore more than 100 variables related to values, behaviors, and lifestyles, including both religious and non-religious areas of life. We compare born-again Christians to born-again adults, um, to non-born-again adults. We discovered that the born-agains were distinct on some religious variables, most notably, get this, Going to church more often, donating money to religious nonprofits, especially a church, and uh, owning more Bibles. 
However, when it came to non-religious factors, the, the substance of people's daily choices, actions, and attitudes, there were few meaningful, few meaningful gaps between born-again Christians and non-born-agains. Christians emerged as distinct in the areas people would expect, some religious activities and commitments, but not in other areas of life. Friends, I don't believe that's the way it's supposed to be. Do we really want a defining characteristic of our lives as Christians or as a church to be that we own more Bibles? If you saw the people that I saw at this conference, the answer is probably yes. That if we own more Bibles, that will make us more holy and therefore more distinctive. I feel like some of the distinctives we need to be known for need to be more like the kindness of strangers that I experienced and in, 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 in the areas of substance in our lives and our kindness and and our generosity, not to ourselves, but to those outside of our community, uh, in the ways we do justice, um, in the ways we manage our families and households. I believe that's, that's the challenge that still stands for us. The threat to the church, to us as, as a church, not just at Oak, but in, in America, is very similar to the churches in, in the first century. The, the threat of accommodation and assimilation to uh, to the the civic or civil like religion and the the imperial like the uh, imperial forces that that are at work. So I thought about what would a what would a letter to the church in Durham sound like, or what would a letter to a church called Oak in Durham sound like. So perhaps now you might expect me to offer my own spirit-inspired exhortation to you guys. But I'm sorry, I'm going to have to disappoint you. <clears throat> because I believe there's other people in, in, in our midst that are, that are uniquely qualified and gifted to offer such wisdom and guidance. Uh, so imparting, and, and yeah, I don't presume to have that answer for you. Um, but I can offer a, a model uh, an encouragement for you to maybe work on drafting your own letter. And maybe you can share that with us at some point. It comes from the practice of Midrash in, in Jewish uh, culture. And Midrash has, I think we have uh, a definition. Midrash represents, it's used in different ways. In some ways it represents a body of literature, which are um, like rabbinic texts that help to open up the scriptures to, to more easily be understood and more easily applied um, and, and helped resolve apparent like conflicts in, in the scriptures. So it refers to a body of, of texts that already exists, but it also refers to like a method and practice of, of interpreting um, text. The most common definition, it, like I said, it's a type of literature, oral or written, which stands in direct relationship to a fixed canonical text. In this case, you know, we have the letters to the seven churches considered to be the authoritative and revealed word of God by the Midrashist and his audience, and in which this canonical text is explicitly cited or clearly alluded to. You know what, uh, you know, what are the origins of this, of this text. <clears throat> but using Midrash as a method in, in writing your own, you know, it involves uh, paraphrasing. You, you guys can read this. I don't want to insult you. No. Um, it may involve prophecy or a parable or allegory. And if I could just go one step further in trying to 
uh, excite your own imagination in our own context. I did some, some study on the, on, on the city of Durham, so check out this next slide. So this, this is the, uh, where are we at? <clears throat> Durham's flag on the left is designed by an artist, Al, Al, Nich Al uh, Nichols. And the, so Durham's birthday is April 26th, which is under the constellation of Taurus, which is a bull. It's a bull city, right? Um, and there's a cluster of seven stars on the shoulder of the bull in, in the constellation, also called the Seven Sisters or Pleiades. Pleiades is also referenced in Scripture. So the seven stars in, in the flag, though, represent the seven high ideals of Durham, which are listed there. Um, but if the church in, in Asia was, uh, was at risk of assimilating um, in an unhealthy way their, the culture in their context, let's look at what are the high values of the city where we live in and our environment, and maybe what are some of the ways that we are at risk of assimilation and accommodation in our particular context. I just love that there's, it's, it's already rich with metaphors with the bull and the seven stars and with the numerology that we mentioned. So I just want to put that out there because I know there are people that are way more creative and imaginative than I am that might be able to do something with this. So that's what I'm going to leave you with. I'm going to pray for us uh, and lead us into a time of individual uh, reflection. Um, and then uh, Betty Jean will come up to lead us in, in corporate confession. So let's pray. God, I thank you that your word is, is alive and active. And I pray that, uh, that, that today's word in Revelation, not just today, but as we keep reading through the scriptures, would excite our imagination and how we faithfully live out our commitment to Jesus Christ. God, would your spirit be at work in us individually and collectively? Uh, may we have ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us. Amen.